Hey, the title of the message is The First Application, Keep United in Love. Okay? Pick it up here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness, gentleness, with, what's that next word, you guys? Love. Suffering, uh, long-suffering, oh, excuse me, I said love, didn't I? I, miss, I, I said a little, with all uh, lowliness, gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in, that's what I wanted to get to, in what? Love, thank you so much, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I mean, there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you, let's all say it, all. Okay, you may have a seat at this time. I heard a story about a gal who approached the pastor after service. He was there shaking people's hands, you know, at the door. And she said, let me tell you something, Pastor, I'm concerned. My husband does not want me coming to church. He is so upset. I mean, I'm kind of concerned about it. I mean, I think he just might lose control or something. He's so ticked off about me coming to church. And the pastor said, look, just trust the Lord. You're doing the right thing. God is really big. He's going to bless you. He's going to protect you and stuff. So she went away. She came back the next week. He said, look, I'm telling you, he does not want me coming to church. I mean, what do I do? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little afraid even and stuff. I mean, I've never seen him like this. The pastor said, look, God is really big. And he's able to protect you. And you're doing the right thing. I mean, just like, do your best, commit the rest. And she, she went away. A couple of weeks later, she came back and said, look, he's changed his tune. He's so ticked off. I'm coming to this church. He told me to tell you he's going to come kill you. And the pastor said, I think this would be a good time you consider that church down the street. You know, I, I just think it would be better maybe if you uh, find some other place to fellowship. Um. You know, it seems like it's maybe easier to encourage other people to live out the Christian faith than it is to apply to our own life. You ever felt that way? And the question becomes, I mean, what does faith actually look like in our life? I mean, what is the lifestyle of living out the will of God? That's actually the question really at this particular time in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 1 there. Find the word therefore. Okay, let me tell you, it marks a transition in the book of Ephesians to identify the right applications for life. And in fact, we're making a big monster transition here at this time. And chapters 4, 5, and 6 are going to address what It looks like to live out the will of God, what it looks like to live by faith. Now, some of you may remember way back when we first started studying Ephesians. Actually, our first point was this. The big picture of Ephesians, the big picture, tells us that in principle, the foundation of the right application for life, like how to do the right thing, what it looks like, what the will of God, all begins with right belief. Do you remember that? In fact, we titled the message, It Starts With Doctrine. Look, you never want to believe someone to say, who says, it doesn't matter what you believe. 
Oh, it really matters what you believe because what you believe informs your thinking, your outlook, your attitude, your values, your priorities. And if someone were to say, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe, um, it's a contradiction in and of itself because really what they're pro- trying to promote is a belief and the belief is it doesn't matter what you believe. No, 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 it does really matter what you believe. In fact, Jesus said in John seventeen three, this is the way to have eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ in whom you sent to earth, John 17, three. So it could be said, okay, just hear this, that Ephesians 1, 2, 3, which we've already studied, chapters 1, 2, 3, explain in great detail who God is and his plan in Christ. So therefore, that word there, therefore, is a kind of drum roll, if you will. It's like drum roll, please. Two, okay. It's like one, two, and three identify who God is, his plan in Christ. It's phenomenal. He's going to create everything new in himself. Everything is moving towards the Lord Jesus. He is the king. Okay, got it. Drum roll, please. What does that look like, therefore, in my life? Okay, again, chapter four, major transition in the book. How many of you guys are tracking so far with that idea? Okay, awesome. So watch this. If Paul says, okay, you guys, I've explained like who God is and who Jesus is and what the plan of God is in Christ. Now what I want to do is begin to address what it looks like in application. What is he gonna say? It's like, okay, awesome. Uh, What does it look like in application? What does it look like in lifestyle? Does it mean this? Does it mean that I cross the Atlantic as a missionary? Does it mean I run for Congress? Does it mean I try to be the President of the United States? None of that. I mean, nothing wrong with those things, but but that's not what he says at this time. Uh, Look at verse two, and I'm gonna quote from the New Living Translation, and we have it up on the screen. Here's what he says, look, You want to know what Christianity looks like in practice and what it should look like? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your, we got it up there, because of your what? Love. Watch this. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with, can someone tell me? Peace. What's the first application for one, two, three? Um, here's Here's what it is. It's keep united. Keep united in love. It's actually to to love fellow Christians. And here's the big idea, and it's in your notes and stuff, and you can take this to your home groups, but the relationship that Christians have with their fellow Christians, and this is what Paul really is teaching, is incredibly important. And it's unique because it is a part of a divine strategy for personal growth, the growth of other Christians, and an impact and influence for Christ in a generation where eternity is at stake. And so like, hey, look, the church is super, super important. I mean, it is... It is a body, it's a, a group, it is a reality that Jesus is created in himself. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against. I mean, he is creating this whole new identity in himself. The church is super important. And therefore, relationships with fellow believers are super important. 
And so we need to learn to love each other. We, we need to learn to bless. We need to learn to receive. It's all a part of a big picture of, of us having the Lord work ultimately in and through us to impact the generation because eternity is at stake. And it's because of that, please hear me, that we need, we need to learn to love. And the question becomes like, what does that look like? Here's where we're headed. We will identify four reasons why we actually need to love each other. Why that's so important. And then we're going to identify four demonstrations of what love looks like, okay? So why do we need to love each other? Here's point number one if you want to fill in your notes, because conflict is inevitable. Conflict is inevitable, and it is a potential disease carrier unless we fight it with love. When I say disease carrier, here's what I mean. If there's conflict between you and another person, okay, generally there's frustration. It can lead to resentment. It then can lead to bitterness. It can lead to even worse things than that. Okay, so conflict, if it's not responded to correctly, and here's the reality, okay, conflict is inevitable. I mean, it's been said there's two absolutes in life, like death and taxes, you know, We ought to put another one there. Conflict is inevitable, guaranteed. There's so many moving parts in life. We're bound to bump into each other. How many of you believe that out of curiosity? It's so true. And conflict is a little bit like, you know, that jack-in-the-box. You know, you wind up that little jack-in-the-box, and then boom, it just jumps out of that little box. And I got to tell you, sometimes conflict can just pop up at the, at the oddest times. I mean, you could be at a wedding and you have conflict. I mean, you, you could be driving in the car and have conflict, and the kids are flip, flipping out. You could have conflict with your best friend. You could have conflict at work. Conflict happens. Conflict is inevitable. Here's the thing about it. Please hear me. If it's not responded to correctly, it has the potential of carrying some monster disease that brings major deterioration and destruction. That's why the Bible says this, hey, be angry. And there is such a thing as justified anger. You know, hey, I don't like that. Okay, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Whoa. So look, why do we need to love each other? Listen, here's the reality. Conflict is inevitable, and it's a potential disease carrier unless we fight it with love. Hey, think about this. Paul is writing from prison. So obviously there was conflict in his life. He's been arrested. And let me tell you why he was arrested. Okay, He was arrested for false information that was spread about him. Someone tweeted in Jerusalem. Someone blogged in Jerusalem false information about Paul. That Paul had taken a non-Jew, a Gentile, okay, into the Jewish court of worship. And to do that was punishable unto death. And here's the thing. It's like they spread false information about Paul. It led to a mob scene. They almost killed him on the spot. Then he was arrested, and as a Jew and a Roman a citizen, he ends up appealing to Caesar to hear his case. Well, let me tell you, he's in Rome. Ultimately, he's going to be put to death by the Emperor Nero, and it all started, listen, because stinking misinformation about him. 
So he had conflict because of misinformation, but let me tell you, he also experienced conflict internally as well. And I'm talking about among believers as well. So it's not just conflict on the outside amidst the world, false information about him, but he's the prisoner of the Lord, and he had experienced also conflict internally. Paul and Barnabas, of course, Barnabas was Paul's first missionary companion, according to Acts 15.39, had a very sharp disagreement over bringing John Mark on the second missionary journey. We don't have time to develop it, but they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. And so Silas and Paul, you know, go and start preaching the gospel together, and Barnabas and John Mark go their separate ways. Now, was the relationship restored? Yes. I mean, they weren't missionary partners uh, anymore, but we have strong evidence that there was a resolve to the relationship. Look, life is so much about learning to love. And God wants us to value relationships and make every effort to maintain them instead of discarding them where, whenever there's a rift, a hurt, or a conflict. Look, maybe you're amidst some conflict. I, I know some of you, I could, just by the size of the group, and, and this is this life, you've come in here with pain, you've come in with baggage, you've come in with concerns and issues, and you know, look, we've all been there. And you have conflict at home, or you have conflict with a son or a daughter or the loved one with a husband, you know, uh, with your neighbor and things. And if I ask for a show of hands, which I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I mean, I'm sure if we were honest, a bunch of hands would go up. I just want to encourage you in something. Think about the Apostle Paul, okay? I mean, he's in prison, right? So obviously conflict, conflict was involved there. And it was because of misinformation. It was inju- unjust, unjust. But here's the thing, the Lord really met him in prison. And and instead of being overcome by the bitterness and the resentment and the unforgiveness, it's like he wasn't overcome by those things. There was forgiveness, there was an openness for the Lord to work in his life and through his life. So even though this conflict, which was totally unjust, that led to him being a prisoner of the Lord in Rome, where he can no longer be on the missionary trails, preaching the gospel, still his life is fruitful. It's like the Lord met him there and continued to sanctify him and grow him, where now his ministry, thank God for this, is now taking the form of pinning, actually, instructions to the churches that have this monster influence on that generation and here in this generation as well. Because after all, we are reading material that Paul penned when he was amidst conflict, but did not allow the resentment, the bitterness, the issue of unforgiveness to overwhelm him. So I want to encourage you in something. God will use conflict in your life. Are you open for that? Are you open to hear how he wants to grow you? How he wants to meet you? How he wants to make your life more fruitful, more one of love with a greater heart than a shrinking one? Be open, be listening, because that's what the Lord wants to do. He's in the redemption business. Here's another reason we need to keep united and love you guys. Number two, Christians are a, everybody say it, family, right? That's right. Born of the same spiritual DNA. 
Please look at verse four. We're one body. I mean, this is a metaphor used to help identify the nature of the church. A body is a unique, complex organism with many members, all of which are super important. We're all connected. Hey, if you ask the question, hey, what Christian is more important than other Christians in the church family? There is no such thing. We're all members of the body. I mean, goodness gracious, the thumb is super important just as the lung is or the liver or the big toe or the arm. I mean, we're all interconnected. And a body needs to work in harmony with itself to be protective and influential and healthy. So here's a metaphor. Look, we're one body. And it's made up of Jew and Gentile and Arabs and Hispanics and Asians and things. You are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and members individually. Hey, hey look at verse 4. One spirit. Well, that speaks of the divine DNA. It's an incorruptible seed, the word of God that we've been born of. Jesus said you must be born of the spirit and not only see but enter the kingdom of heaven. Guys, hey, we got the same DNA in us, divine nature, born of the Holy Spirit. People around you are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse four, call to one glorious hope in the, in the future. In other words, we're all headed in the same direction to the same end. Please look at verse five. There is one Lord. Who is it? Jesus One faith, one baptism, one God, who's triune in nature, and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Hey, can I hear an amen to that? Have you ever experienced this before? You meet a believer, you've never met them before. I don't know, maybe in another state, maybe in another country, and there's that sense of just affection, since like, you know, it's like, I don't really know you, but I know you, you know? I mean, think about our own families. You know, there's that natural affection that one has towards siblings that just is really deep. I mean, there could be a lot of arguments and fighting. I mean, goodness gracious, I was always fighting with my older brother. But, um, but push comes to shove. It's like, hey, there's major natural affection. We're going to protect each other. We're going to love each other. Um, I want to thank you so much because I, as I mentioned last week, I, uh, boy, a couple of weeks ago, my 56-year-old sister passed away, we believe, in her sleep. And, um, you know, so, you know, and I, and I know this is so weird, but I just keep thinking, I think, oh, my, my poor sister, you know, I just want, just want so much. I would love to have been there to be there for her. And things. Anyways, um, this that natural affection is so strong. You guys, I remember a time. I have an older brother. He's a pastor in, in Missouri. I mean, misery. <laughs> no, it's kidding. Uh, Missouri. Um, and there was a neighbor guy, and I don't know if he's a junior in high school, and I kind of had a big mouth. And uh, I ended up provoking him outside our home. And... Um, and this guy was quite bigger than me and stuff, but he wanted to fight me. And my brother ran out of the home. I'm so glad he did. It was so awesome. And just took this guy on, man, and was swinging and hitting. And, oh, I've told this story before. I had a football in my hand. Ah, I shouldn't glory in this. Anyways, forget it, sorry. 
Okay, I got to tell you, I threw it. I hit him right in the head, this guy. It was an awesome shot. Anyways, uh, my brother was just, you know, sticking up for his little brother. There's just something so powerful about, you know, natural affection biologically. Wouldn't you agree to that? And then look, you guys, we have to understand something. There's going to be conflict in life. We need, to, we need to love each other. We need to love each other also because we are family. And we have the same spiritual DNA. Here's another reason we need to keep united in love. Number three, we are all still, what's the next word? Flawed. And still under construction. You know, my good friend Greg Laurie was asked by Larry King in an interview whether he agreed that Christianity is just a crutch, you know, to cane, to just help those who have some inherent limitations or pains that, you know, they're just unable to walk correctly in life. And stuff. So it's just, it, you know, Christianity is a crutch for those who need some extra help. Greg answered, Christianity is not just a crutch. It's a hospital. There's no doubt about it. Look, if we don't make the distinction between, this is very important, between discipleship and salvation, it causes a lot of problems. Salvation is a gift. It's the miracle of the moment. In other words, it is, a, it is received by faith. It is a gift God gives, purchased by Jesus on the cross. The Bible says we are rescued. We have this right standing with God. Uh, it, 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 by grace, we receive it by faith. It's done. Once you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's, it's like you are positionally secure. You have his love. You have your ticket to heaven. You are secure. You are secure. You are secure. That's the miracle of the moment. Salvation is the miracle of the moment. Then it begins a process of growth. I mean, that's called discipleship, and that's a process of a lifetime. Okay? So on one hand... When we receive Christ, it's like we receive his love and his forgiveness and positionally we are secure as secure can be. On the other hand, it begins this process of growth. Now, I don't want to lose anyone here, but please hear me very carefully. Okay, we were sinners before we came to Christ. And the reality is, even after coming to Christ, we are still sinners. We are sinners, yet we are saints, the Bible says, which means we've been set apart, we've been made holy, positionally right with God forever, secure before him, we have his love, but, please hear me, we're still a sinner. I had no idea I've said this billions of times, the degree of which I was a sinner when I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 16. I mean, I am so grateful that Jesus Christ came to save sinners because I have a greater understanding of the depth of the need for God's unconditional love and favor and regeneration in my life now that I'm 51 years of age than when I came to faith at the age of 16. The apostle Paul penned that he had not reached full maturity. The messages to the seven churches in Revelation will tell you that Christians are still under construction. 
And if that doesn't convince you, read First and Second Corinthians. I mean, read any of the letters written to the churches. If we don't recognize that in ourselves, that we are still sinners under construction, we learn to hide, which makes matters worse because you can't change what you don't face. And if we don't recognize this in the church family, we'll undermine our fellow Christians' need for continued healing and growth and that we play an important part in that process of forgiveness, of patience, of love, of encouragement. Can I hear a big amen to that? So it's like really, really important that we understand, look, we're still flawed. We're all still under construction and therefore love is absolutely necessary. Here's another reason we need to keep united in love. Number four, hey, we are the hands and feet of Christ which is meant to impact a generation for his glory for which eternity is at stake. I mean, if you look at verse six, please look at it with me. At the latter part, he says, one God and father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Whoa, the Lord actually lives through us, yeah. And he has a plan for us to be a part of the work of Jesus Christ and healing on planet earth and preparing people for the kingdom that is coming as everything is moving towards Jesus. Here's the thing, please hear me. If we don't love each other, if we don't learn to love each other, it's not easy. Endeavoring, endeavoring. We're gonna get to that word in just a little bit to keep the bond of the unity and peace and things. That word endeavoring means actually to study. You really gotta work at it at times. If we don't do that, we're gonna end up like shooting each other, you know, while we have this mission to impact the world. Vance Havner said this, if we're too busy using our sickles on one another, we're gonna miss the harvest. If we don't learn to get along with each other, it takes us off course from our mission, which is glorifying Christ, and the cost is way too high because the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in and through believers. So if we're turning to each other and like using the sickle on each other, man, we're gonna miss this monster opportunity that is before us. Okay, (laughs) so why are we to love each other? Conflict is inevitable. And and it's a potential disease carrier. God help us. We need to love each other because we are family, born of the same spiritual DNA. We are to love each other because we are still flawed and, and under construction. We are to love each other because we are the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ in this generation to impact where eternity is at stake. Okay, everybody got that. Question is, what does love look like? Number one, jot this down. Hey, here's what he's saying in verse two. When he says, with all lowliness, he's speaking of humility. Love actually is humble. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it's been said that humility is the soul of love. Why? Okay, look up here for a second. First of all, Paul is using a word that was not even in Greek. Some people believe he's making up this word. Lowliness. Why? Why would he even talk in such terms? Because you have the Almighty, the Eternal One, who demonstrates phenomenal, redemptive, provisional love, and he gets really low. He steps down from eternity 
and takes upon himself a form of a man and he serves and ultimately gives his life on the cross. You talk about getting low. I mean, the incarnation, God becoming a man is getting low. If I get lowly, I'm in a posture of what? I'm listening, respect, recognizing the Lord who is above me, esteeming and valuing others other than myself. I mean, get that picture in mind. That is a form of humility. Just think of the posture of lowliness. It's a place of selflessness. Okay, love is humble. The antithesis of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Love is humble. Love is others-oriented. Love is not ego-driven. Love puts the Lord first. Love esteems others. It's others-oriented. John MacArthur said, only humble people love. And your capacity to love is directly related to your capacity to humble yourself. You understand that, he said? That's a simple biblical truth and principle. Only humble people love. The humbler you are, the less interested you are in yourself. The greater your capacity to invest in someone else, they are related to one another proportionally. The lower you go in self-concern, the higher you go in concern for others. The more you sacrifice for you, the greater you will sacrifice for others. Love is humble. Love is selfless. Love is teachable. It's like I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to learn. It's others-oriented. Hey, listen, one of the best ways to bust the blues, like if you're not feeling well, maybe even feeling a bit depressed, you know one of the best things to do is find someone to love. One of the best things to do is just kind of get out of the downward spiral of, I don't know, a pity party or just over-concerned about yourself and circumstances, is to say, okay, I'm going to get my eyes off myself, just like the Lord did, actually. Got his eyes on the world, did something about it, and became very, very lowly, and gave himself away. That's, That's what love looks like. And number two, love demonstrates gentleness and patience. It's long-suffering. Man, we could talk about this really for so long. I just want to give one big monster picture of what this looks like, okay? Because I know you'll remember this. Just look up here for a second, okay? Here's what love looks like. Love has these really big monster ears. So just try to imagine it on my head. I know my head's really big as it is, but just that, just like big huge ears. Love listens. Love like has a small mouth, really inordinate, big ears. Okay. See, you're going to remember this point. I know you are really, they just be big eared, man. I mean, it's big monster, just like they drop down to the floor. Big ears, right? Paul advised this. He said, look out for another's interest, not just for your own. And the phrase to look out for is the Greek word scopus, from which we form our words telescope and microscope. So it, it means to pay close attention, focus on That person's feelings first. And maybe not even so much the facts, but their feelings. What's going on emotionally? Begin with sympathy, not solutions. 
You want to focus on reconciliation rather than resolution. He's like, oh, I, okay. I mean, the Bible says for a husband to dwell with his wife according to understanding. That's very important, right? So I, I'm going to need to listen. I need to know. I mean, she's communicating what she is feeling and she's communicating, you know, her soul. And it's very important. I listen. That's very critical. Rather than to quickly, you know, try to resolve all the issues, I am focused on just harmony, reconciliation here, that involves understanding, that involves big ears. Let me tell you something, when people are hurt, okay, I mean, we've all been hurt before, right? Our emotions are really raw and and they can be all over the place. And listen, a lot of times our our, our, our ideas and what we're saying is just irrational. They're not clear. Feelings are not always true or logical. If someone is like spinning out you know, because of pain and things and spinning out in resentment and makes them act and think in foolish ways. You know, David admitted, when my thoughts were bitter and my feelings were hurt, I was as stupid as an animal, right? So he's just saying, I was acting beastly, if you will. Why is it so important to have two really big ears? Because we're talking about love demonstrates gentleness and patience because... It's not only healing to the one who is communicating their pain, but listening and demonstrating patience is love. And ultimately, as we all have heard before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I've said this thousands of times. It's just because it's what the Bible teaches, love in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. So in interpersonal relationships, when there's adversity or friction, love is patience. Retreats in the adversity, advances in kindness. It's between the retreat and the advance. It's one of the greatest learning curves in our life. Here's the thing, watch this. Conflict is inevitable, right? You agree with that? Absolutely, it's life. We're gonna bump into each other. We're not like these watches that are just syncopated perfectly and stuff. I mean, we're gonna bump into each other, guarantee there's gonna be conflict. So there needs to be love. There's a lot at stake within the church. We have a mission that God has called us to. Okay, if I don't learn gentleness, which is a fruit of the spirit, it's a fruit of abiding in Christ, it it creates this downward spiral that, that just ends up just creating horrible habits that take relationships nowhere except down. Like, let me try to illustrate it really quickly. I was on the phone with an airline. And um, as I've said before, the day after uh, resurrection on a Sunday, we're celebrating resurrection. I'm headed to Jerusalem to speak at a Bible college. And I was kind of working on some stuff with regard to my airfare. And so I called this airlines and they said, okay, the wait time is 19 minutes. Okay, so, and actually I said, okay, so I put it on my, you know, little speaker phone and I was working on this message. That's why I'm putting this illustration right here. In fact, I was working about right at this point in the message. And so I'm just listening, waiting for them to pick up and things. And I'm kind of in a whole other world and just getting a lot of things done. And, um, so I just, I looked at my watch and it was like 12 minutes. Now imagine if I just hung up at 12 minutes. I mean, that would have been a waste of time, right? I mean, here, here's the point, is that when you have adversity, if you react, 
in anger. If you like, hey, get really big mouth and really little ears, it's like hanging up way too early and it just gets you absolutely nowhere. You're going to have to call back. You're going to have to work these things out. So it's just better by God's grace to go big eared. Can I hear an amen to that? Right? All right. Number three, guys, love works hard on finding a way to be at peace with other Christians. Because in verse three, when it says endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, the Greek word there translated endeavoring literally means like studying. And the idea is we need to study on how to get along with people who are difficult, who are maybe defeated, maybe even ones we don't like. Now who said that was easy? It takes work to do that. And I think we're going to get to our last point in just a little bit, which is ultimately we need to major on the majors, not the minors. Don't sweat the small stuff. That's critical, actually, to studying and endeavoring to keep the peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is not easy. You know, Jesus said, however, that he would bless in a really, really big way. Those who are peacemakers. God blesses those who work for peace, he said, for they will be called the children of, can someone tell me? God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the peace lovers, because everyone loves peace. Neither did he say, blessed are the peaceable, you know, uh, who are never disturbed by anything. But Jesus said, blessed are those who work for peace. Those who actively seek to resolve conflict. Those are the blessed ones. You know, I love one of our core values. It reads, the church is the most diverse family on planet earth. There will be differences among Christians, but we are not to tear each other apart. We must commit to unity in diversity. We must be responsible local Christians and global Christians who I believe need to embody the adage in the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty, but in all things, can someone tell me, love, love, love. Number four, guys, jot this down. Look here, this is what love looks like. It majors on the majors. Love majors on the majors, not the minors. It's like, you don't want to sweat the small stuff. Here's the thing. Please hear me. I think this is one of the biggest challenges facing the church today. I think there's other challenges, but this is one of the biggest ones. Please hear me, every mom, every dad, every future mom, every future dad out there, every grandparent out there, this is critical for our lives to impact the next generation. I'm telling you, your grandkids are watching you. Your children are watching you, okay? The world is watching the church. If we don't get this right, we're gonna blow it which is we need to differentiate between what are the real majors that we focus on, that we die on, if you will, versus the minors, which are the non-essentials. You guys kind of get that idea just in general? Okay, well, let's talk about this real quick. Well, there are, there are major Bible teachings. There are chief core doctrines, okay? It's a term we don't really use so much, but it's a biblical term. It simply means teaching. 
And teaching is very important. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you'll be my disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth shall set you free. Please hear me. There are certain teachings that are absolutely essential to uphold, to preach, to make known, to lay hold of, that define what a Christian is and what a Christian community is. In fact, these core teachings, the Mormons don't hold them, the Jehovah Witnesses don't hold them, the Islamics don't hold them. These core teachings is what defines right relationship with the Father in Christ and what define, actually, a genuine Christian community. Then there are other, and I'll name them just a little bit, then there are other teachings that are important, but they're not the essential teachings. They're more in the non-essential category. If someone has a different view than I do on how to baptize someone, like some people will baptize someone three times in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and you know, or just once, you know, or, or they may say, I baptize in the name of Jesus. Another may baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Pastor Chuck, my pastor taught me to just cover all the bases, actually. <laughs> so it's like, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. So you don't have someone like freaking out doctrinally as you're lowering them in the water. Just cover all the bases, you know. Okay, but that's, that's non-essential stuff. That, that's like not essential to whether or not you're going to go to heaven, whether or not you have right relationship with the Father in Christ. Are you guys tracking with me on this? Watch. Here's another non-essential. It's not a major doctrine, and that is teachings on the return of Christ. Some believe Jesus is coming for his church before the tribulation. Some people mid-tribulation. Other people at the end of the tribulation. That is not an essential teaching. Some people feel that, you know, drinking wine is just totally not right. It's really an issue of conscience. We're not to get drunk. We know that. That's clear. Um, others, like, drinking wine is no big deal. I'm not going to get buzzed as a result of it. That's not an essential teaching that determines right standing before Almighty God. How many of you are tracking with me on these ideas? Yeah, thanks so much, right? So it's very, very important to identify majors versus the minors, and if you think of Bible teaching just real quick as tiers, like think of a pyramid, you have foundational teachings, then, you know, as I see it personally, I see at least four tiers. The first one is the most important, deity of Christ, salvation by grace, resurrection of Christ, judgment, sin, monotheism, the authority of Scripture. These are essential teachings. When it comes to discipleship issues, prayer. It's important, but it's not going to determine your eternal salvation. When it comes to issues on election or spiritual gifts, important, but not going to determine your eternal salvation. When it comes to wine or cultural issues and so forth and so on, important issues, but they're not major issues. Look, let's think of it even a different way. Please hear me. The Bible says, exercise yourself to godliness. Carries the idea of sweat out some good godly disciplines that are going to facilitate your growth. You know, like, give me some sanctified sweat, you know. Okay, well, what would that be? I mean, they're sweating the big stuff, and then they're sweating the small stuff. And in, in the church, you don't want to sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat political differences. Don't sweat personality differences. Don't sweat cultural differences, clothing, food, customs. 
Don't sweat non-essential doctrinal differences. Mid-trib, speaking in tongues, differing interpretations of election in times. Hey, don't sweat procedural issues in the local church. I had a friend. I love him. He's my brother. Hopefully he's here, okay? But, you know, I don't think he is anymore. He got so upset when we had communion one time on a Sunday morning, had a table up here. And, you know, just, we just sang a bunch of songs. We were worshiping and had people come at your own leisure. And that upset him so much, you know, because he felt it was out of order and things. And it's like, okay, well, look, I got, I got, I got the point. And, you know, I don't want to frustrate people procedurally. But listen, that... That is not an issue that you would break fellowship with other believers. And he said, you know, it's enough for me to break fellowship. I'm thinking, geez, Luis. No, 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 no. We better pick our shots here. Don't pick that one. It's like, well, the music, well, it's just, okay, it's the volume and stuff. Okay, I got it. We all have our likes and dislikes. All right, everybody tracking with me? But you just don't major on the minors. Don't sweat the small stuff. Otherwise, we're going to go all insane and like implode and miss an opportunity that God has for us in our generation. Hey, sweat the good fight that Jesus is true. Sweat the good fight of evangelism. Sweat the good fight of being patient with people and big-eared. Sweat the good fight of loving your family, your neighbors, purity, prayer, fellowship with Christians, going to church, downloading and studying the Word of God. Can I hear an amen to that? That's what you want to sweat. God help us all. I want to say one more thing. Please hear me. We're talking about conflict. How you need to respond to conflict correctly. It's no small thing. Don't don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, that conflict can result in resentment and bitterness and hatred and all kinds of morphing realities. Deal with it, deal with it, deal with it. Let me, let me share something with you from the total bottom of my heart. Okay, the Bible says that the chief core problem with our world and with us is a conflict we have with him. The the Bible says we are not in harmony. We are not in step with the true and living God. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And this conflict, seriously, this conflict with perfect love and justice and purity and holiness is the core problem in our world today. I mean, Netanyahu was in our Congress, right? I mean, giving one of the greatest speeches of our time. Why? Because there's conflict. I mean, you know, people are working through conflict all the time, business at home. We all know this. I mean, life is full of conflict, right? The biggest conflict is that man is out of step with Almighty God. That is such a serious issue. Please hear me on this. Jesus said it's so serious. He said there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. You be that find it. He said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. He was asked when he was going to Jerusalem by someone, hey, how many people are going to get saved you know, um, and Jesus responded, it's a narrow way, which, which simply means you have to be really intentional. You have to like make, make sure you get in, be decisive, don't put it off. I mean, if everybody rushed through one door, say, you guys, let's get out of here and rush through one door, it would, it would just be a mess, right? And, and so it's, it's, it's like, so the point is like, you better be intentional to get there to get through the door, if you will. 
And, and so the Lord is just saying, look, there, there are some issues that are of such importance. You don't want to put it off. And I say that because I'm telling you one day, you're going to stand before the Lord one day who made you and created you. And the issue is going to be what you did with his son. That's going to be the issue. And I just don't want you to, I just don't want you to miss like these next few moments of receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior because it has such a huge impact, not only in your life in the here and now, but forever and ever and ever. That is a flat out fact. That is a reality. And thinking otherwise doesn't make it go away. It's true. It's true. It's true. And I just think of those, and I'm just going to end a few more. I just think of those who missed opportunities. I think of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They had a major turning point. They missed it, and therefore they're in the wilderness for 40 years. They didn't seize it. I think of when Jesus was on the cross, and two thieves, two criminals were one on his right, the other to his left. And both mocked initially, and then one of them ended up changing the way he, th- he thought and turned to Christ as Lord and Savior and seized the moment. The other one just, oh man, it's a narrow way, man. You missed your opportunity. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, man. Make sure you seize it in these next few moments. I'm praying for you.